Merry Christmas. If you thought that Christmas ended on December 25th, you were mistaken. We're going all the way to New Year's. And we are keeping this party going. We're celebrating the birth of our Savior. And we'll be looking at a different Christmas story than you probably read most years. We'll be looking at John chapter 1, verse 1, looking at John, the beloved disciple, and his account of Christmas. And we've got this great, so if you have your Bibles, you can open up with me there. Uh, we've got this great story in our family. We have an aunt who gave a child up for adoption as a young woman. And uh, her whole adult life, she wondered, what is that child doing? What do they look like? What would they say? What are they up to? Her whole life. And she always wanted that child to come and find her. She couldn't find him, but he could always go to the agency and look up her information and then come find her. And she, her, her whole life, wondered where he is, what he's doing, what he's up to. And then one day, a few years ago, he did that. He did exactly that. He looked up her information and he came and found her. And he was having a child of his own, and she was able to go out to where he lived and help him and his wife as they had their first child. And she no longer had to wonder anymore. She no longer had to wonder what her son was like, what her son would say, what her son would do, any of that. She had her son. She had her son with her. And that story reminds me so much of Christmas because we wonder where is God? His life is hard. We wonder what is he doing? What would he say? Where is he? What is God like? And we don't have to wonder. Believers in Jesus Christ don't have to ask those questions because what we have is we have the image of God come to us. We don't have to wonder. We can look to Jesus. And so today we're celebrating the third part of our sermon series in the image of God, celebrating Jesus Christ, who is God, come to take on flesh, celebrating Jesus Christ, who is the perfect image of God. And on most Christmases, you'll read something like Luke chapter 2, which is a very traditional Christmas story. But the interesting thing enough is that the Gospel of John also starts out with a Christmas story, but we don't always Notice it, and so we're going to begin reading from John chapter 1, verse 1, celebrating the image of God, come and taking on flesh. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so here John starts his account, not with Mary in the Immaculate Conception, but he goes back to the beginning. Jesus didn't begin when Mary birthed him. Jesus has always existed. How long has Jesus existed? Where is he from? Who is he? Well, John needs to go back a little further than the manger. He goes back all the way, and he's definitely um, repeating Genesis 1.1. How far back do you have to go to begin the story of Jesus Christ? Well, you have to go all the way back to the first account of human history, the account that was handed down through generations and eventually written down by Moses in the beginning. You've got to go all the way back. And that's how Genesis starts. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that's where John needs to go to start his account of Christmas, his account of Jesus Christ. You've got to go all the way back to the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And as Jesus goes through his ministry, people are always asking him, they're saying, Who are you? Who is this guy who can heal the sick, raise the dead? Who is he? And they're expecting a little different answer. 
as Jesus goes through his teaching, and we'll have to talk about this, at some point do a sermon series on it because it's so interesting, it's so fascinating. All of the I am statements in John are Jesus claiming to be God. They keep asking, who are you? And Jesus says, I am the light, I am the bread, I am the good shepherd, I am, I am. As he explains to them, and they're not used to this, they're looking for a genealogy. Who is this guy? I am the bread of life. And they don't get that answer. They don't grasp on it. Isn't this Joseph's son, the carpenter? That's what they're looking for. As they ask throughout the scriptures, they say, who are you? They're looking for Jesus to say something more like the genealogies we usually read. I am Jesus, son of Joseph, son of Sheltiel, son of... And if you read through the Bible, these are the boring passages, right? I'm always up for good genealogy. Why don't we look at one of them right now? Matthew chapter one. They're looking for Jesus. Who is it? Where did he come from? Well, the book of genealogy, Matthew talks about his genealogy, who Jesus came from. Well, he came from the son of David, father of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah and Tamar and Perez and the father of Hezron. And Hezron, the father of Ram and Ram, the father of Aminabinabab. And it just goes on and on and on and on and on. <laughs> Let me click through all of this. All of these people, Zadok, Eleazar, Jacob, all the way down to Jesus, finally. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called the Christ. And that's what people are looking Who is this guy? Where did he come from? They're looking for something like that. Luke does the same thing. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jonah, all the way through, all of those names. If you're looking for good baby names, this is a great place to take it. You could name your kid Mathat or Eliakim, all the way down to Jesus. And we miss it here because we're used to the genealogy looking like this. But John starts with the genealogy. First one one is Jesus' divine genealogy. It's one sentence. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What a genealogy! Everyone else records Matthew and Mark and Luke. They record his human origins, and John is here to record his divine origins because Jesus isn't just another person. Jesus is God come to us. He's God taken on flesh. And as they ask Jesus, who are you, who are you? He doesn't say any of that. He doesn't go through that. He could have. Well, you see, my great-grandfather was Mathat, and then there came Eliakim, and then that's not who Jesus is. Instead, he says, I am God over and over. And those I am statements are so fascinating because if Jesus came to earth and you see these people on the corner of the city, they stand on a box and they're insane and they say, I am God. And they start shouting random nonsense and no one listens to them. Not a single one of those people has ever changed the world. Everyone just dismisses them. And John 1, 1 continuing on says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. If you've ever wondered 
What will God say? What will God do? What will God say to me? What does God want for me? What is God like? What does God think? How does God feel? You don't need to ask those questions. You don't need to wonder. You can look to Jesus Christ and see all of those answers. He was in the beginning with God. He was God, and all things were made through him. Now, some people wonder in church, too. You can go to church for years and years and years and wonder, is Jesus God? Is Jesus God? Because we spend so much time talking about the main seven things, our finances, our parenting. And we're missing the main point. The main point of the Bible, the main point of Scripture, it's Jesus And our God has come to us. Jesus is God. He's not just another teacher. He's not just another person. All other religions were started by a person who claimed to know something about God. Christianity is the only religion that makes the claim that this was started by God himself come to us. Every other religion is some guy who goes off alone by himself And comes out. Joseph Smith goes into the cave and looks at the plates and comes out and says, look, I've learned something about God and you all need to listen to me and follow me. Muhammad goes into a cave and he comes out and says, God has spoken to me and now we need to go do this and this and organize the armies and I know something about God that you don't. Buddha sits down by a tree by himself quietly and says, I've experienced nirvana. Take my word for it. Take my word for it and listen to me about what I know about God. And Christianity is completely different. It's not started by somebody who claims to know something about God. It's started by God himself, and he didn't write anything down. He didn't write any of it down. He is the word. He trusted everyone else to write it down because he knew they'd find it important. He wasn't worried about it. He wasn't anxious. Did you guys get that? Did you guys get this miracle? Did you make sure to record that? You guys are going to want to, are you writing this down? Christianity is the only religion where the revelation happened publicly in front of many witnesses over and over and over. And you don't have to take a man's word for it You can take God's word for it because he sent his word to us. And Jesus is the word. Jesus is the light. And he comes. Our creator comes to us. And there's different religions that believe Jesus was created. A lot of times you can attend church for years and wonder, well, wait, where did Jesus come from? Is Jesus God or not? You know, I've heard people say that. Atheists will say that. I say, Jesus never claimed to be God. <laughs> that's, the, that's the most ignorant take you can take on the scripture. When you say that Jesus never claimed to be God, you show that you have no idea about literature or the cultural context at the time because every time Jesus claims to be I am, he is claiming to be God. And here John tells us that Jesus was God. And if you run into some different people, they'll say Jesus never claimed to be God. And so one day we're going to have to go through those claims and talk about it because it's so interesting how Jesus so powerfully claims to be God that they all either worship him or try to kill him because they get it. My favorite is in Mark chapter 14 where Jesus is on trial and he doesn't say a word. And they can't believe it. They say, what's wrong with you? You're on trial for your life. 
You have nothing to say? We're judging you. And Jesus says, you'll see the Son of Man. They say, are you God? Are you claiming to be God? And Jesus says, you'll see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with power. And that is a reference from Daniel chapter 7 about God judging the world. The judge will come on the clouds with power and judge the world. And they're sitting there saying, Jesus, you're on trial. Don't you care? Aren't you going to say anything? And what he just said was, I'm judging you. I'm God, and you will see me. They, Are you God? Yes, I'm God, and you'll see me coming on the clouds with power, and you think you're judging me this whole time. I'm judging you right now. I'm, right, I'm paying attention, taking notes for your trial. <laughs> and they get it, and they rip their garments and say, blasphemy, right? Blasphemy. And so Jesus, the whole point of the scriptures, the whole point of the Bible from Genesis to the Gospels and through is that Jesus is our God come to us. But different people will say that Jesus was a created being. If you ever notice that, the Jehovah's Witnesses, they came to my door and they came up and they said Jesus was a created being. And they said, here's our Bible. And I said, well, here's the Greek Bible. I'm a pastor. And here's the Greek Bible. Let me open up the Greek. Let me read it to you in the original language. And I, I don't know if you know this, but the Jehovah's Witnesses, they'll mark off on a map where the pastor's houses are so they don't send their people there because they lose too many people that way. After I had that conversation with them, they went back, they talked to their people, and I said, please come back. Bring, bring your people back. Bring your leaders back. Let's, have, let's talk more about this. They never came back. I saw them in the grocery store. I chased them down. David, David, you didn't come back. Come back. I miss talking with you. But the Jehovah's Witnesses, they'll say that Jesus was a created being. And if you ever talk with a Jehovah's Witness, you can teach them that he's not a creating being pretty quick. You can divide everything that exists into two categories, things that never came into being and things that came into being. The only thing that never came into being is God, right? God is the only thing that wasn't created. And then here it says that all created things came into being through Jesus Christ. Verse 3, all things were made through him. How many things? How many things? All of the things. So if all of the things that were created were created through Jesus, then Jesus can't be in that category. So you have the, the things that never came into the being and the things that came into being. God is the only thing that never came into being. Everything else came into being through Jesus. And so he can't be in that category. And so he's got to be in the first category, which is God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jehovah's Witnesses will say that it says that Jesus is not the God. He is a God, and he was created. But you can say that's not what John meant, because here you can divide it into all categories, all things into these two categories, and show that Jesus doesn't belong in the second one very easy. He belongs in the first one. He's God. And therefore, that's what John means when he says the word was God. It doesn't mean a God. It means the God. Jesus is the God. As you're going through the New Testament, you have other passages which back this up. Colossians 1 verse 16 says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, or all things were created through him and for him. And Jesus is the word. It's no coincidence that John uses the word to describe Jesus. He could have used other Greek words to describe Jesus, but he uses logos, the word, 
Because in Genesis chapter 1, things were created by God's word. And John is clearly thinking of Genesis 1 as he begins his writing about who God is. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God said, let there be. And God said, and God said, and it was so. And God said, and God said, and God said, and God said, saw that it was good. Everything is created through God's word. And here, John is teaching us that all things were created through Jesus. And this is why he calls Jesus the word. And there's other Greek words that John could have used to describe what Jesus was. He could have used a variety of words. There's different words even in the Greek for word. There's rhema, not logos. Instead, John uses logos, which is very interesting that he chose that because in their culture, in other religions, logos was used to describe the reason, the mental faculty of thinking. If you read the philosophers, Socrates, Plato, they talk about the logos, the divine mind of God, what is he like? What, is, what would he think? What would he do? What would he say? And of course, they came a few hundred years before Jesus. And John is saying, we've got the answer to those questions. We've got the image of God. We've got Jesus. We've got the word. And he doesn't just use the other word for word in the Greek language, rhema. He says, we've got the logos. We've got Jesus is the reason. Jesus is the mental faculty of thinking. We've been talking about what it means to bear the image of God in this sermon series. And the first week, we read about how God blessed you and I with his image. We talked about how my kids, they've got my image, they've got my likeness, they've got my hair, my eyes, my nose. So what does it mean to bear the likeness of God or in his image? It's not God's physical characteristics, right? God is all-powerful. He's omnipotent. He's everywhere. He's omnipresent. We don't bear those characteristics. And so what does it mean to be the image of God, we talked about how it means that we reflect God and his nature to other people like a mirror. And Jesus is the perfect image of God because he is God himself. And we are not. We've sinned, and therefore we're not God ourselves. We're not godly even. We are sinners by nature and by choice. And so what we reflect primarily to people is a broken image of God. And we have the incredible ability. God has given us the ability to reflect his wisdom, his righteousness, his character, his nature. But at every turn, no matter how hard we try, we give an imperfect impression of God. It's not terrible. You can learn about God from each other. That's why the body of Christ is so important. We learn about God from each other. But if you pay attention, every one of us is a broken mirror. And Jesus is not. Jesus, too, gave up those physical characteristics of God, being omnipresent, being omnipotent, and limit himself. Philippians chapter 2 talks about that, how he humbled himself, came from heaven, took on flesh. But Jesus still reflects perfectly the divine reason, the mental faculty of thinking. And all those philosophers that said, Who would he, what would he say, what would it be like? Well, we know. We know because we can look at Jesus. As John begins his genealogy, he goes all the way back to the beginning. Jesus is God. Is Jesus all of God? Yes. Jesus is all of God. And that's because of the Trinity. I had a guy who came to our church, and he came and he said, I don't know, you know, Jesus is like, you know, part of God, but how do we know that he's all of God? Because, you know, there's other parts of God. How can we know that? And he said, uh, how can we, uh, how, how does the Trinity even work? 
And a lot of times when people call me up for coffee, it's something really you know, big in their life. They're going for a divorce or something. He calls me up for coffee. I'm thinking, oh, I hope his marriage is all right. I hope everything's all right with him. And he sits down and he says, how does the Trinity work? It's like, I, I totally didn't expect, is everything going okay? Yeah, yeah, everything's going great. <laughs> Wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah, I don't know how the Trinity works. All right, let's go do something else. <laughs> but that wasn't a good enough answer for him. And he never came back to church. And I said, I don't know how the Trinity works. But I was surprised because I did say that whatever God is made out of, like you and I can't be everywhere. Like I can't be all of you because you're over there and I'm over here. I don't even know what you're thinking. I can't be connected to you in that way. I can't be all of you and I can't be all of you and you can't be all of them because we're physical. But God is spiritual. It says in John, God is spirit. And whatever physics spirit operates by, well, apparently he can do that. So I don't know how it works, but I'm it, it, surprised that the answer wasn't good enough for him because I know he watches Star Trek. <laughs> and I'm like, don't you have an imagination? I mean, whatever the substance is of God, he has no problem being all of himself and yet in three different unique individuals. And Jesus is all of God, even though he is not the Father and he's not the Spirit. The Spirit still existed when Jesus took on flesh. The Spirit didn't take on flesh. The Father still existed when Jesus took on flesh. But the Father didn't take on flesh. Jesus took on flesh. And before his name was Jesus, he was just the second person of the Trinity, always with God, always existing. And he was the creator. By him, through him, all things were created. The God who created us is Jesus. And we can look to him to learn about that God. And verse 4 says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is life. And if you want to live, you got to know Jesus Christ. And as a younger person, I grew up in church. I grew up in a world that was just immersed in Christian culture. I didn't notice much of a difference between the life that I had and the life that other people had. And I thought, what is, it, what is the power of the Holy Spirit? What does it look to have the Holy Spirit? And who, who knew that in the last few years I'd be able to learn more about the power of the Holy Spirit from its absence as the world turns away from him? And I look and I say, I didn't realize that was that different. I didn't realize I was that different than anybody. I didn't realize that I was like one of the only people out here who had the life of Jesus in them. In the last few years, if you want a superpower, and I'm not exaggerating, it's a superpower, a supernatural power. You believe in Jesus Christ and you receive his life, and you'll be able to do things that other people can't imagine doing. When I look at the last few years and I look at the light in my life as the world is submerged deeper in darkness, I've never experienced this before. I heard stories about people from other countries who said in our country you can't trust anybody. You can't trust the media. You can't trust the TV. It's all propaganda. They all work for the same team. They're all working to oppress the people. They all tell you one thing when another thing's happening. I thought that's, that sounds like, that sounds insane. And I look and I'm like, who knew that honesty 
It was an absolute necessity, or to have God, it was an absolute necessity to be honest. I had no idea. And you look at the people and how they react. And now I get it. I used to read the story of David and Goliath. I think, how could David have had that kind of strength to stand up against a bunch of, a big dude and nobody else could do it? No one else could do it? Are you kidding? They had a whole army there. They were trained for this. This is what they did for a living. And it's time to step up and nobody does? How could David do that? It's because he had the power of God in him. David wrote all these psalms about God's spirit. He was filled with God's spirit. And David's sitting there. He's not afraid. The whole army is wondering, how are we going to do this? How are we going to do this? And David stands there and says, why haven't we done this yet? He's got the power of God in him. And if you want the power of God in you, you turn to Jesus Christ and you'll find yourself becoming incredibly different. Where other people can't imagine what it would take to get the job done. You'll be able to do that. Or other people have no joy. You'll have joy. Or other people have fear. You'll have strength. It's a superpower. And Jesus talks about it all throughout the scriptures. And it begins right here. In him is life. They want to live. They got to turn to Jesus. And the culture which teaches that you're enslaved to your desires. You'll have self-control. And this is what Jesus does for us. This is what he brings. I would have been a crumbling mess the last few years if it wasn't for Jesus. I would have been an absolute crumbling mess. I remember it was just absolutely overwhelming. When we have confidence... In Jesus Christ and his strength, you're believing not in yourself, but in the power of God. And if you need life, believe in Jesus Christ. If you need light, believe in Jesus Christ. We had uh, this, these people were stealing cars and they were leaving them in front of our house uh, last year. And so we got this LED light. It's incredible what they have now. These little LED lights. And you can get them for the dollar store, too, with the kids and stuff. They make little kids' lights and stuff. They're more powerful than the flashlights I used to have. These little things. And so we got LED lights. It's not that big. It's a panel of LED lights, and it's solar power, and it doesn't take any energy. It's incredible, the day and age we live in. And so I got this motion-detecting LED light, and I put it on my garage. And whenever anybody would walk by, boom, it lit up the whole yard. It lit up the whole street. It's amazing. My kids, we'd go out there and play in the middle of the night, and it would be pitch black outside, and you're outside, boom! And the darkness would leave immediately as it would it'd be replaced. There was no more darkness anymore. It went from being pitch black to bright light. And this is what Jesus does. He's not harmless. Right? He comes as a baby. We talked about it on Christmas Eve. He comes as a baby as, as quietly and peacefully as he possibly can. Because he knows that we're sinners. And he knows that we know that we're sinners. And he knows 
that if he comes in any sort of threatening manner, we're going to kill him already. I mean, imagine if he came as the king. It would have been an immediate revolt. He comes as a baby to get our attention, to win our hearts, and even then, we kill him anyway. Because he's not non-threatening. He completely replaces what is here. And when you get that, you either worship him or you try to kill him. If you're on the fence about Jesus, you just haven't thought enough about who he is. And the people who thought about it before he was even born, they thought, we got to kill him. Kill the babies. Kill them all. Because this is such a threat. We've got to get rid of it now. And here Jesus talks about that threat. John talks about that threat in Jesus. And Jesus talks about that. I am the light. There's no other option. The light has come to replace the darkness. And we can all choose what we want. We can have the darkness or we can have the light. But we can't have both. That's hard for us because we're sinners. And every one of us is not godly. Right? We're not perfectly godly. We've got some darkness I really kind of like. I'd rather that one not go. And I'd rather Jesus not have that part of my life. I'd like to put up a fence there. Over the years, we've had a lot of interesting neighbors. We've reached out to a lot of our neighbors, made friends with them. We've had neighbors that don't come outside, and you invite them, and you invite them, and you can't get them out. We've had neighbors that are super friendly, and they invite you over first. And they have a bonfire, and there you're at their house before you can even get them at yours. We've had neighbors who didn't speak our language. We've had all types of lang- neighbors. I remember one of our the neighbors that we were getting to know recently, our kids called their, their son Scooter Boy. Because every day the father would get home from work and he'd take 10 laps around the block and this little kid would follow his dad on his scooter every day. And our kids didn't even know his name yet, but they'd talk with him and they'd call him Scooter Boy. And we had all these neighbors. And what's the most interesting neighbor you've ever had? It sounds like the plot of a sitcom the most interesting neighbor that we've ever had is God. He came and lived here. He moved in next door. And you remember tool time with Tim Allen? That was God. Wilson, next door. The voice of God. But it actually happened. Sounds like the plot of a sitcom, but it's actually reality. God came to us and he said, hey, Howdy, neighbor. What are you guys doing on that side of the fence? I had a, a mentor said, what's your ministry? Like, what a, sounds like something from the 80s. What's my ministry? I thought of Pat Robertson and televangelists and Kenneth Copeland. And I need a plane for my ministry. You know, I was like, I, can't, I don't. What? I have a ministry? But I do. I have a ministry. And I was thinking, what's the point of the ministry? And I, my mentor said, what What's the point of your, what is your ministry? What do you do? That's a good question. What do I do? When I stand up here for half an hour, what do I do? What's the point of it? Why do we come here? Why am I here? Why not somebody else? Why not go somewhere else? Why do we have a sermon? Why don't we just sing the whole time? Why do we, you know, what do we do throughout the week when we try to get you into men's events and small groups and, and service events? Like, what are we doing? And the whole point of what we're doing is to inspire each other The whole point of my ministry is to serve you, to inspire you, and remind you to reject the darkness in your life and invite Jesus Christ to take the whole thing. That's the point. 
It's great to give you a, or put up a bouncy house and have the kids jump on the bouncy house, try to get some people who don't know the Lord in the church to make an initial decision for Jesus Christ. It's great to get those people and try to get them to come back next week. It's great to invite our neighbors. It's great to then try to take that into a small group with other believers so you can start getting to know each other and start influencing each other for Jesus Christ and all those steps, all those things that we do. And then to get you serving, it's great to get you serving, get you serving as an usher, get you using your gifts and skills. Jesus Christ served and sacrificed for us. Get you on the worship team, get you on the sound booth, get you back there with the kids so you can start teaching them and start sharing the gospel and practice sharing the gospel with kids so then you can go out and get more confident and share it with other people. But the whole point of it all the, point, the whole point of all is to get people to look at their life and say, I don't want any of the darkness. Right? We build these fences up when we keep God next door and we don't look over here, Jesus. Don't look now. But there is no other option. The darkness is all going. And we've got to make a decision. And just because we choose the light doesn't mean that would be perfect, but it means that we don't want the darkness in our life. We've repented of it. That's what it means to be repented. I don't want it. I'm not going to be perfect. The Bible teaches us we'll never be perfect. But the difference is, is I'm not hanging on to it. It's not my identity anymore. I hate it. Get rid of it. Destroy it. I want the Lord to come and destroy the darkness in my life. I want the Lord to come and destroy and replace what is in here. And that is my ministry. No matter what step along the way that you're at. The ministry here, my whole point, my whole desire is to inspire people to say, wait a minute, I don't want that garbage. I want the Lord. And this is what Jesus does. This is who he is. He is the light. He's got all these different ways to describe it. I'm the light, I'm the life, I'm the good shepherd. Going down to verse 6, it says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that is the ministry. There's people who won't receive him. Well, keep those fences up. Stay over there, neighbor. Good fences make good neighbors. I'm comfortable with the way things are right now, Lord. I'll go to church once in a while. I'll pray once in a while. I'll try to do a nice thing once in a while. But these areas of my heart are mine. And what we want is to break down those fences. What I want is to inspire people through the power of God and his word to break down those fences and to let God near because God is not far. John tells us that the true light came near. Isaiah 9-2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. This is who God is. This is what he does. And this is what he does for us as we believe in Jesus Christ and submit to him as our Lord. He's not far. 
That's the great deception, isn't it? That God is far. Where is he? He doesn't feel close right now. But the truth of God's word is that he is near. And when we break down those fences, he is near to us. Acts 17, 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he's actually not far from each one of us. He's not far. He's as close as our faith in Jesus Christ. And if we want God near, he's not far. We just believe in Jesus. He's right there. doesn't matter how you feel. Our faith isn't based on our feelings. Our faith is based on the fact of Jesus Christ. He came to us. He moved next door. He was all up in our business. A lot of people didn't like it. He came to his people. He moved next door and they said, move out. You're not welcome here. But to anyone who believed, they became a child of God. He's not far. Isaiah 55, 6, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. We have this incredible opportunity before the Lord returns again, when he's near. And we have the opportunity to find him. You have the opportunity to find him. As you sit there and wonder those thoughts, wonder what God is like, you don't have to feel like he's far. You can begin reading about the Lord and know him now. And he is with you. He's the image of God. Hebrews 1.3 says he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The word imprint is only used in the New Testament in this verse. I'm going to butcher it if I try to say it. Apogasma means radiated brightness. It means those things. And you look at what it means and how it's used in the culture. It's used to describe an imprint on a coin. It's used to describe an impression in the clay, a brand on an animal hide, an etching in metal. When you take one thing and you jam it onto another thing so that when you pull it away, you can still see what it was. And that is Jesus. It's God, and he took a bunch of flesh, he jammed himself in there, And you look at that and you can see Jesus. He's God with the, in the bag of skin. And John chapter 14, 9 says, you don't have to wonder. They say, show us the Father. He says, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. I'm the imprint of the Father. I've got his picture on me. I'm his mirror. How can you say, show us the Father? I'm him. We can find out about how God feels by looking at Jesus. He is the exact image and nature of God. So you're when you're looking at all the people who are suffering in the world, and you say, well, how, where is God? What is he doing? How does he feel? Well, you don't have to wonder. You can read about it. Matthew chapter 9, 36, when he looks out at the crowd and he's moved with compassion because he says they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shirt. You don't have to wonder how, God, how can God sit by and do nothing. He's not. He's saving the world right now. Read about it. You don't have to wonder. In Matthew 14, 14, when you look out and you say, all these sick people, there's kids who are sick. How can God let this go? How does he feel about it? How can he be indifferent? He's not indifferent. Read about Jesus in Matthew 14, 14. He heals everybody. They bring 
bring entire towns out to him. How does God feel about it? Well, here it is. And he's in the process of fixing it right now. And you don't have to be confused. You can have the light and know what's going on. He's clued you in. He's come and told us. How does God feel as we suffer personally? As my loved one died, I prayed and I prayed. And they died. Where's God? How could he let this happen? How does God feel about it? You can read about it. In John eleven thirty five, 35, he weeps as Lazarus dies. And he's in the process of fixing it. Last week I had a conversation with somebody about gender in the middle of the sermon series. It's a three-part series. In the middle of the series, we talked about gender and how we bear God's image through our gender. Bearing God's image is more than gender, but it's definitely not less. And Satan wants you to not know your value and not know that you're made in the image of God. And so he wants you to get to hate a lot of things about yourself, especially the things that God intends for you to use to reflect him. And that's one of the reasons why he is all about attacking our gender. We talked about that last week. If you missed that sermon, I encourage you to go online and listen to it. You can go on your favorite podcast player and type in Harrisonville Community Church. You can go on our Facebook page or our website, harrisonvillecommunity.church. You can always catch up on those. Last week, we talked about gender. I had somebody come up after the service and say, well, I think God supports my decisions and supports it. He wants me to be happy. And I, I shared the word of the Lord, shared the, the Bible the word of God, and I say, in the beginning God created, and he said, let us make man in our image. Male and female, he created them. And I said, you don't have to change your gender to be happy. The message of the word is that you can love yourself the way God made you because he does. He loves you. That's why he made you that way. At the end, I said, well, I appreciate your opinion, but I'm going to go with God. When I went to college, that was what everybody said. Who's to say? Who's to say? I would say, look at the word of God. And they'd say, who's to say? They're so confused. They're like sheep without a shepherd. I, I don't know who you are, and I don't know what you're saying, but I know who he is, and I know what he is saying, and that put me, puts me light years ahead of just about everybody else in our culture. This person, I'm, I'm going to go with God because God says what I want him to say. and I don't have to wonder what God says. I don't have to make it up myself. I can look at the words of Jesus Christ in Matthew 19. He says, you don't know the power of God or the scriptures. Haven't you heard? In the beginning, he created them male and female. I don't need to bumble around in the darkness when all these people come to me and say, well, who's to say, young man, in this postmodern world, your voice is just one voice among many, and who's to say that your voice is right? I don't have to. I don't know what these people are listening to. I've got the word of God. I don't need to go around in darkness. I've got the light. It's Jesus. When I sit there and I'm suffering and it's terrible, and I say, God, where are you? Why don't you give me good things? I, I don't have to wonder what, what he's doing. I can read Matthew chapter 7, verse 11, where he says, If you who are evil know how to give good gifts, how much more will our Father in heaven give good things to those who ask? Everything God gives me is good. If there's something bad in my life, the Lord is allowing it for good purposes. Why is God allowing this bad thing in my life? Because he's getting me to learn how to overcome evil with faith. God loves me. 
And he wants me to grow in my love for him. And every time I choose to have faith in him over whatever evil Satan brings my way, I've grown in my love of Jesus because I've grown to love him more than whatever Satan took away. And I'm trusting in him more to restore whatever Satan took away. And I'm overcoming evil with faith. He's training me to make me stronger. I don't need to wonder. Everybody asks, why does God, bad things happen to What do bad things happen to good people? Christians, we don't need to bumble around in the dark. God allows bad things to happen to good people because he's training us to overcome Satan with our faith in him. And one day he is going to come and judge the world. And I don't need to wonder. I can know by looking at Jesus. I don't need to wonder if God loves me. I can look at the image of God. Every other religion, God's love is hypothetical, theoretical, philosophical, metaphorical. But Christianity is the only religion where God comes in the flesh and demonstrates his love for us. And on the cross, his love isn't an idea, is not an idea. It's not a philosophical belief. It's not a theological belief. It's practice. It's an action. God demonstrates his love for us. I don't need to wonder if God loves me. If I ever doubt his love for me, I can look at Jesus on the cross and I can measure it. Because it's historical. It's not abstract. It's tangible. Every blow he took, every nail in his hand, every thorn in his flesh, every whip he received... That's all literal, historical action of God demonstrating his love for me. I don't have to wonder. Who's to say? Well, the Lord has blessed you. The Lord has blessed you with the ability to choose who is to say. And choose where you'll look. He's blessed you with that choice. And he's blessed you with the ability to have his son. He's blessed you with the ability to have him near in your faith. Who's to say? God is to say. Jesus is to say. He is God's word. And he says. And let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much that you've brought us God's image. Jesus, we praise you so much for being God's image for us so that in this world of darkness, we don't have to bumble around without direction, without hope, without joy. Instead, we can look at you, Lord. We can see you. We don't have to wonder how you feel about us. We can look at your cross. We don't have to wonder what you'd say to us. We can look at your son and see what he did. We don't have to wonder how you feel about us. We can look at your word and we can see the feelings and the emotions of Jesus Christ, the feelings and emotions of you towards us, Lord. Thank you so much for blessing us with your image. And Lord, we celebrate Christmas. We celebrate the moment that you took on flesh and left your imprint on a bag of bones and skin and walked around among us as God. Lord, thank you for your direction. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. And we praise you in Jesus' name. And let's stand and worship.